welcome to McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston, committed to student success in an equitable world, and heard exclusively on WUMB. For season three, we continue in-depth public interest conversations, including inequality, urban research programs, education in the 21st century, U.S.-Africa relations, public service and policy careers, and more. Welcome back to part two uh, with my distinguished guest, Adam Hines. Adam is the CEO of uh, the Edward M. Kennedy Institute of the United States uh, Senate. Welcome, uh, Adam. Thank you. All right, let me pick up from last week and then ask you a few questions. First question is is about the uh, graduation ceremony um, that you have graciously um, accepted to be a keynote today. Your talk um, serves to inspire students uh, completing their educational journeys to begin new careers. Relatedly, you once said that fighting for social mobility and income equality is a matter of national security. So, so what do you mean uh, by that? And, and, and what message uh, do you have for the public and global affairs students in a post-pandemic era? Well, first of all, maybe we should reserve judgment on whether or not I inspire the students until I give the speech. But um, that's it's. I'm excited to to be a part of the, the the ceremony. So thank you for that. I guess what what I was saying when I referred to um, social mobility and income inequality as a as a matter of national security is the the fact that we we understand all the implications, the negative implications from generational poverty, especially, um, but social disparity uh, in general. And so you, you mentioned in my bio of kind of understanding, uh, starting an organization that was working in communities with kids getting involved in violence, and it directly overlaid with the neighborhoods that had the lowest per capita income and, and median household income. Um, and surprise, surprise, you know, folks who didn't have food and didn't have ed- necessarily access to transportation networks and, and on and on and on were experiencing lower health outcomes, lower lifetime earnings and the like. And um, and so it, it's a pretty straight line to me from seeing the, the lack of investment and the gaps that we can um, and see in, in kind, of, uh, kind of less prosperous economic areas that it has a dramatic income um, overall. Uh, And so I could kind of follow that line and say, from an economic perspective, it's a national priority, right? You know, we, the the records show that there's less growth when you have more inequality. There's, um, you know, less stable economies when you have dramatic inequality of that nature. Um, And so that, that was part of what I was referring to. I think um, it's a nod to the fact that um, inequality in the in the United States is in fact higher than almost any other developed country and is rising, mm-hmm. and so at a certain point you you make the determination that it doesn't have to be that way here. And and what are the investments that can move the needle and change um, uh, how that uh, how that is is kind of taking place today, including how we address um, you know the legacies of discrimination in our economy and in our community in our communities. And so um, that was what I was trying to speak to in, in those moments as a, as a state senator and um, really making the argument for stronger investments in everything from education and housing and, and the like um, and, and health equity throughout our commonwealth. Let me 
um, you know, go to your role as uh, they called you the Pittsfield, right. uh, the Pittsfield State Senator. Returning from Iraq, you were to the Commonwealth in 2014. You worked over the next two years to establish the Pittsfield Community Connection and the Northern Berkshire uh, Community Coalition, which um, engaged in community building and youth development activities. Pittsfield is the geographic and commercial hub of the of the Berkshires that includes um, Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and author Edith Wharton's estate. Um, it includes the Mount. The buildings in Pittsfield are listed on the National Register of Historic Places, so in fondly being called uh, the Pittsfield Senator, tell me a little bit about your role and the role that the city has played in um, shaping your public service work and politics. I often felt like I was walking a fine line. The, the Berkshires <laughs> and Pittsfield, um, and then I covered about 20 towns to the east of Berkshire County, are magical, magical places. I I grew up there and, and to have the ability to live and work amongst nature and with proximity to Boston and New York and, and the like. It's, it's really um, second to none, I think, in terms of quality of life in many ways. And yet, I, I would say, I could add to that list, by the way, cost of living and, and on and on. And, and yet, there are serious challenges that I thought, um, you know, increasingly started to characterize what is common throughout the Commonwealth in terms of gateway cities, Pittsfield being a gateway city, uh, and really throughout the country when you saw the, the contrast at times in um, how rural areas were treated, how areas furthest from the capital were treated. And, um, and so that became a real theme. But I would add to that list even, um, you know, areas of our country and Commonwealth that took a real blow, a real gut punch. For us, it was GE that departed and took about 13,000 jobs with it. Mm-hmm. Almost overnight, in terms of the big picture, yeah. you lose that many jobs, um, and it's a it's a real challenge. And so to feel like collectively, hey, we've been knocked down, what are you going to do about it, is is a, is a narrative that um, is, is common. And often it means, okay, we're going to lock arms, we're going to stand up and, and, and take on the good fight to make sure that we have new investments in you know, transportation. For example, we've fought very hard for West East Rail, and um, one of my signature uh, efforts was to connect the Berkshires with New York City by train Good. for that purpose. Um, we didn't have high-speed internet. When I entered office wow. um, five years ago, the majority of the towns did not have high-speed wow. internet. I know. It's, a, it's an eye-raising, right? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> And yet we would expect or we would be surprised in Boston to say, well, why is there not the level of economic development or um, home values that contribute to tax bases and on and on? And, and you can kind of see the, the challenges that our local schools confronted. And, yeah. and so I put a, a big effort into creating new line items in the budget to, to compensate for that, including one called a rural, rural school fund. Um, and so... I think that that really colored my my approach to capital to Beacon Hill um, and uh, and and making sure that we had loud voices from those that were farthest from the capital. How is the tourist um, economy there these days? It's the third largest, you know, after education and healthcare. But it's it's a strong um, part of our economy. And uh, you know, to your point, we have seen billions of dollars of investments in the last um, let's say several years in 
hotels and and you mass mocha you know the one the sure. largest contemporary art museum in the country is in north adams and um and to have all of that happening right there alongside this um is is pretty pretty unique your leadership roles in pittsfield would earn you the trust of uh, the residents of Berkshire County, whom you would come to represent on Beacon Hill um, as senator from 2017 to 2022. As a senator for Western Massachusetts, you chaired a variety of legislative committee assignments and championed policy initiatives dedicated to social and racial equity, healthcare access, um, educational development, and supporting base status during the COVID-19 pandemic. In the Senate, a popular bill that you established resonates strongly with our our gerontology and aging services programs Mm. and our disabilities programs here at the McCormick School and uh, at our College of Education and Human Development. And so Bill S399 was titled, was an act of protecting the rights of older adults and people with uh, disabilities. And I just want to read what the bill establishes because it's so important. Mm. Uh, every nursing home shall establish a human rights committee which shall have the authority to receive and investigate or investigate on its own motion any complaints affecting the rights of residents. The department shall promulgate regulations to promote the dignity of residents, both permanent and temporary, of licensed nursing homes that are equivalent to the protection of rights of residents of facilities licensed by the Department of Mental Health and the Department of Developmental Disabilities. You even taught a course um, on classes, I think, at our, at the OLLI at uh, Berkshire Community College. The OLLI is the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute, and we have I was an say, OLLI have right here, here yeah, yeah. Uh, at the McCormick School. Great. But can you elaborate on the importance and impact of Bill S. Sure. And um, thanks for for lifting it up. And and I appreciate that the school has a gerontology department and and program. It's really um, almost increasingly important, I would say, as you look at the demographics and, and shifts that are taking place, people are living longer. And that's the good news. It all has implications on our nursing homes and our yeah. um, and our similar facilities, and and so you know I, I get that there's a double, two sides of a coin, and the the economics are are a challenge as folks are maybe spending less time because they're healthy longer and and the like, um, and so there's there are shifts that that are worth noting and and how to work through that. I think for me the the concern was you know it can be very personal our experiences with nursing homes and and parents and grandparents and ensuring their treatment you're you're literally putting the lives of your your most loved folks into the hands of others and um, really making sure that you have a responsive facility for that and so when you're in the position of the a state senator you're constantly given these various instances and people say well what can government do and um, this was an effort and maybe it's a good example i, I suppose of saying Okay, we have a concern. How do we how do we operationalize that and um, in meaningful ways? And um, and this is an effort to to do that. 
I would say, you know, among the other challenges um, are really, there's everything from, we talked earlier about income inequality. And, you know, this is, again, a field where you just see a concentration of lower wages, um, a concentration of uh, people of color, a concentration of immigrants. And so rights for staff is another big deal. And, um, and unionizing um, in that space is a, is a big issue as well. And so um, anyway, for all those reasons, nursing homes come to our attention regularly in the state Senate. And, um, and you can argue that the role of government is, in fact, making sure that you're, you're standing up for the basic dignities of, of everybody in the Commonwealth. Well, now let's talk about the uh, political economy <laughs> right. of, of, of the Commonwealth. While you were state senator, you chaired the Revenue Committee and served on the Ways and Means Committee in 2018. You raised an interesting question back then uh, that I think resonates today for understanding the political economy of the state. You asked uh, a then newscaster interviewing you, and this is what you say. Uh, While in Massachusetts we have a strong economy in parts of the state, we seem to be unable to raise the revenue that we need and anticipate. And so is this still a relevant question today in 2023 uh, for the state? And how did you answer your own sort of contradictory (laughs) question? (laughs) Darn it, I have to answer my own question. It is interesting. I can tell by the the context. It was before um, the pandemic and because of the revenue models that kind of came after, surprisingly to a lot of us. But we had um, a a couple of years with revenue challenges, for sure. And this this is clearly taking place during that time frame. Um, And as the fair share amendment was being put on the ballot. So we had multiple votes in the legislature, too, in fact, before uh, it could go to the uh, ballot to be put in front of all residents, which says that if your income for, per year is a million dollars, then the, anything above a million dollars is taxed at 9% instead of 5%. And, um, and so uh, I was very publicly in supportive of that as a state senator, in support of that, and it is the law now. It's no longer, well, up until recently, it hasn't been the case. Um, we've now had several um, annual budgets where our actual our, our models have been off and we actually have bring in more and more surplus revenue. And so um, that has been changing, but it's in part been driven by federal assistance and, and the like. And so sure enough, um, just as after the House completed their ber- version of the budget in April and before the Senate took it up in May of this year, the forecasts decreased. And so for the first mm-hmm. time, we were below our revenue yeah. expectations. And so it might be shifting as we speak, okay. which we expect to happen uh, in any event. I, I think I'll speak to the larger point, which is the regional differences. And I guess I, I, I gave a nod to that when you asked me about being the, the Pittsfield senator, that there's, you know, we have thriving economies in portions of our, our Commonwealth and yet areas where we're still experiencing population decline. And so I'll get back on my uh, my Western Mass soapbox here to say that there were three counties um, in the Commonwealth experiencing population decline. And guess what? There were the three that were furthest away, the most rural, and and without the state investments. And yeah. so in critical things like education, transportation, yeah. and, and the like. And so it's not a coincidence to me that you don't have investments. We now do um, in broadband, but having going through that for um, years and years without that, there's a big discrepancy. And so um, I believe that's probably what I was referring to. In 
in accepting the role of CEO for the EMKI, you also noted that that really jumped out to me as perfect fit because it combines my international negotiating work with domestic political work. That really caught my attention. Uh, Your decade-long tenure as a political affairs officer at the United Nations placed you in Iraq as a negotiator along with the Iraqi-Kurdistan border. Uh, You were also stationed as a manager of international coordination within the Levant at the United Nations headquarters in New York City, and you were assigned to Jerusalem to to be an envoy of UNESCO's Middle East peace process, as well as tasked with aiding the disarmament of the biochemical weapons regime in Syria. What an impressive background in global affairs you have. You have, uh, you're really a role model for many of our global governance, international relations and conflict resolution program students. Can you speak to <laughs> the state of the world, especially <laughs> in the Middle East today? And, and will the... Um, the EMKI be uh, developing programming on international and global uh, public policy. Tell us about the state of the world. Over to you. I love it. Uh, So I I think for me it was, um, maybe I'll start in the order in which you highlighted them. And and, um, so the kind of the internal boundaries uh, rather than a border between the Kurdistan region and the rest of the country, they, they highlight one of the themes that comes to mind when you ask me about what we're seeing in the world and um, maybe lessons learned. And for me, alliances change. I think that's a big one. And so some of the rivalries that I saw uh, when I was there or when I was based in Jerusalem uh, working on the Middle East peace process, they've just completely shifted. And and none of us would have guessed that while we were there. I'll give an example. Um, so we were literally working the, the border, the, a seam from Syria to Iran through the northern part of Iraq. Um, and the UN was positioned to to bring the parties together to clarify where the southern boundary of the, the Kurdistan region was. And um, there was a essentially a shoot to kill order given by the Kurdistan region against um, a Sunni Arab governor of the the government, the province of, um, of Nineveh, if he went so far towards the region. ISIS comes in and he is in exile, in quotes, um, in the Kurdistan region. So a common enemy shifted the dynamic entirely. Um, and, and that's just one example. And so we often talk about that in state legislatures, or in, let's say in politics. Be careful of who you make your enemy because you might need them on, on the next bill that you're working <laughs> on. And yeah. so there's a, it's a bit of a refrain there. <laughs> Um, that's applicable on both sides. but um, And then similarly with the, the Middle East peace process, I wasn't the envoy, but I was um, the regional kind of officer, so spending a lot of time in Beirut and Amman, Cairo, Damascus. The civil war had already kicked off when I was there, so less time there um, until there, as you mentioned, working on the chemical weapons. But um, similarly, there was this assumption that we were making 10, 12 years ago that the regional countries would not... Uh, recognize Israel or engage with Israel until there was progress made for Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And so to see this kind of shift in, in um, bilateral agreements being made is another one where you just you can see that, mm-hmm. okay, you align the interests enough, be it right. common enemy in, in Iran in this case, or um, economic you know, ties that are developing and the like, and mm-hmm. things shift. So that, that's, yeah. that really strikes me. I think the bigger dynamic is 
you know, what I've keeping my eyes on is the world is getting closer. And, mm. you know, in my view is a good thing. Um, but how will people respond to that is the question in my mind. And so you have how states can respond and you have these international frameworks to try to navigate that. But, you know, we're seeing the real human responses and the political responses to a world getting closer together. And, and I think um, to me, that's where the the next generation's work uh, will lie, and um, and I, I hope that McCormick School graduates will be a part of that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, do you see this uh, world, um, you know, getting closer as a positive impact, or um, is there a negative impact? I only see it as positive, okay. and um, you know, maybe that's not surprising given my background and, and otherwise. But I, I sure, uh, you know, upholding the, the traditions that you hold dear and 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 the like. But it doesn't mean that we have to start wars when we when we see a, a kind of a, a, a violation or a change in traditions that we ex- we appreciate it. I think there are ways to do this well, um, but I don't think we figured it out as a global community. Yet. A question about how you sort of um, shift from this kind of work, the international, right. comp, you know, and it's not just you know an ambassador or sort of diplomacy, but you're doing conflict resolution. And right. so, how do you sort of um, you know scale that to the politician work, and on the other hand, the public service, uh, nonprofit, you know, leadership that you have? It's it's a fascinating question, and and I remember when I was running for the state senate in 2016. I decided, and my campaign decided, let's 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 not mention the international work that much. Um, the the thinking was, that's wonderful that you spend so much time in Baghdad, but um, at the end of the day, what are you going to do for the the pothole at the end of my driveway? And um, but even by the end of that first campaign, people kind of grabbed onto it and said, well, hold on a second, those are some experiences that will actually help you um, navigate Beacon Hill in in Boston and and actually be a stronger advocate. And so I think that's. Mm-hmm. That's held true, and and um, it's meant that even in the Senate or or in our communities, when we've had contentious events, um, I, I've tried to model what it means to create the space for engagement um, across differences, and so that's that's a big one for me for sure. Um, I think a, a, a second one is, you know, even in the work in uh, at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, we're very deliberately reaching out to Republican Republican led um, institutes and centers to partner on on this national dialogue work. And so we have we're partnering with the Orrin Hatch Foundation to to convene two sitting senators in our chamber to to model civil discourse and the exploration of common interests. And then we're meeting we're we're teaming up with the McCain Institute to to bring these ten senators together uh, this summer so that they can talk through how, you know, their vision and of how the, to reform the Senate or, yeah. or at least to improve the functioning of the Senate. So I think so that's a bit of a mediation role. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So there's a common <laughs> theme, I guess, that, yeah, that has yeah. been brought along because yeah. of that. Yeah. <laughs> Our work is cut out for us. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's right. and that's why we have invited you here <laughs> as our keynote speaker, um, as well as this interview has been fantastic, um, Adam. Um, I'd like to thank you again. I'm calling you Senator Hines uh, for this engaging conversation. I wish you continued success in your new role as EMKII CEO. And on behalf of the McCormick faculty and students, we are so thankful to you for your public service. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, and thank you for all that you do for the school. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes Season 3 of McCormick Speaks. 
In collaboration with the McCormick School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston and WUMB. We'd like to thank this season's guests, Tanya Fernandez-Anderson, Barry Bluestone, Dahlia Lithwick, Sambul Siddiqui, Mary Grant, Leonce Indicumana, Ellen Cassidy, and Adam Hines. This has been McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston and WUMB.